What are your thoughts for people who are learning this now about themselves as adults? They're 25, 35, 45, even 55. Is it too late for these folks? I think at any age, it's always helpful to to understand yourself and any new piece of information for looking back in previous situations or just like being able to understand yourself better. It's unfortunate how some people didn't have the opportunity to learn and know this important thing about themselves for the past, but for the present and future, it's never too late. And there's always going to be a chance to use what you've learned and what you know to go forward with future relationships. Hello and welcome to season two of Your Neurodiverse Relationship. This summer series is a communication series where we're talking about all of our neurodiverse relationships, not just our domestic partnerships, because communication happens in all of those relationships in our lives where we're interacting with the important people in our lives. And uh, that would be, you know, our siblings, our parents, our children, our coworkers, our neighbors. And neurodiversity is all around us not just in our marriages and our partnerships with our spouses. And those of you who are in neurodiverse partnerships, a lot of you are realizing that your spouse or yourself even is neurodiverse when one of your children is identified as being on the spectrum, or sometimes it's a grandchild. For me, my daughter was the one that was originally identified as autistic when she was five. And then I eventually after a long, long time, realized that her dad is also on the spectrum. And then through all the years, looked at at the family tree on my side of the family too, and also started seeing autism in my family tree. I see it in in her dad's side of the family too. And uh, that's just the story that I hear from so many of you as well. When you understand the characteristics and the traits, and you start looking at your families and you realize, oh, okay, this is where this is where this is coming from. You start to understand the people in your world better. And communication truly is the bridge that connects us to each other. It's how we connect. And when that bridge is is out, like here in the southeastern United States where I live, we have tornadoes come through, we have hurricanes closer to the ocean. And bridges get washed out from floods and high winds. And when those bridges are gone, we can't connect from one side to the other. And I use that image with communication because it's what connects what I'm thinking and feeling to what you're thinking and feeling or to what my partner or my child is thinking and feeling. So when there's a breakdown in that, it disconnects us. And it creates confusion and that leads to conflict and misunderstandings. And that's what I see in, in all of your neurodiverse relationships when you talk to me. And it's what I've lived in my own relationships. So today is part two of my conversation with two of the very most important people in my life. My children, my daughter, who Abby, who is autistic and she is 19 and has been an advocate of, of her autism. She still calls it Asperger's a lot of the time because that's what the label was when she was first diagnosed. And she talks a little bit briefly about that in part one last week. And also my son, Aiden, who is 16, he is not autistic. And they talk with me last week and today 
about what it's been like for them as siblings in this neurodiverse relationship of theirs and also with me as their neurotypical mom and in our family. So listen into our conversation. I invite you to hear what they have to say because I think you're going to really relate to so much of it. Also, before we move on into that chat, today is June 28th, 2022. And I just want to remind all of you that enrollment is open for my next live communication workshop. And this is the communication program that you've been hearing about from some of the other guests that have been here on my podcast. You recently heard from Michelle about her marriage to Dave and how they went through this program. Matt and Jen talked about it. Clara has talked about it. This is the program that has really been life altering. It's the communication models that I created for myself and my own neurodiverse relationships. So there's a self-paced program that you can do and you can find that on the website at crackthecommunicationcode.com or if that's hard to remember just go to jodycarlton.com scroll down the page and you can find it the live workshop is coming up with me on july 8th so be sure and hop on and register because seats are limited on that we learned that you were autistic abby when you were five and we shared that we we were very upfront with you about that and of course at, at age five that was just a word and at the time it was called asperger's and of course they changed that in 2013 and that really bothered you a lot because that was your definition that was well, the way it's, it, it that hasn't changed i will still say i have yeah. asperger's yeah you still and you still identify as an aspie yeah. and a lot of people re relate to you as well that were diagnosed previously you've learned a lot about yourself you've advocated and you've done papers, you've done essays, you've done speeches at school. And so you've made it a point to understand yourself as much as possible through the years. And it's still affected and impacted your relationships. But I want to just say that there's a couple of things I want to point out. <clears throat> One is that you've been also growing up just as a just a, a girl growing up. And you mentioned some of these things are just what any, you know, person is experiencing. And that's very true. A lot of people who learn that they're autistic, you learned it when you were five. A lot of people learn it when they're 25 or 35 or 45. And they, it may, they go through this, a similar developmental process of understanding it, learning about it, and then changing or implementing different ways of interacting with the people in their lives that's very similar to what you've done and in right now I hear you saying that you look back and you see how you were controlling and it, you were self-absorbed and I'm curious what your opinion is Abby you're a student of psychology you like to study people and how their brains work and their personalities and I'm just curious about your thoughts about you've known that you were autistic and this has been an evolving process for you learning how to be in relationships with others and communicate. What are your thoughts for people who are learning this now about themselves as adults? They're 25, 35, 45, even 55. Can, can they learn now? Can they learn? Is it too late for these folks? What do you think? I don't think it's definitely not too late. To me, I think at any age, at any process in life, it's always helpful to to understand yourself and any new piece of information for previous 
looking back in previous situations or just like being able to understand yourself better. It helps. It's unfortunate how some people didn't have the opportunity to learn and know this important thing about themselves for the past, but for the present and future, it's never too late. And there's always going to be a chance to use what you've learned and what you know to go forward with future relationships. Even like it can be used for jobs, like whatever you're doing in your career, especially if it's a career that involves communicating with people, customers, support, service, anything can always be helpful to understanding yourself. And it's definitely never too late to learn more about yourself. Yeah. We're all learning about ourselves too, not just neurodiverse. Neurotypical, we're we're constantly learning about ourselves. And Aiden, what would you say based on the fact that you understand neurodiversity probably a lot more than your peers? And you're 16, but you also have a lot of friends who are autistic. Some of them have been diagnosed, some of them have not, but you spot autism in them. Our family, sometimes when you bring friends home, we're, we're all kind of like, yeah, I think because we, we're so familiar with it. How do you see yourself approaching people just in general and your own life going forward differently than maybe some of your peers might? What you know about neurodiversity, how will that help you with the, the people in your life? You have friends, you have, you've, you've already seen that neurodiversity is everywhere. How will that benefit you or how will that change the way you interact with people going forward in your life? I mean, I, I guess it just, it helps give me a little bit of an explanation about maybe some of their actions, maybe some of what they do. It, it just gives me a little bit more understanding and it helps me not take anything personally. That taking anything personally, that's such a big problem. That's such a big thing mm -hmm. because that's something that I hear so much from the couples that I work with that it feels so personal sometimes. But really, once we get past that and we know that it's not personal. And Abby, for you, what's it like for you being a neurodiverse person in our family? So what's that like for you in terms of taking it personally, the way we approach you when we're the neurotypicals and sometimes we just expect you without even realizing it we expect you to behave and approach and act neurotypical what's that like for you yeah it can definitely be frustrating I feel like I've had plenty of experiences in the past where I don't think the people in my family have understood exactly how I'm feeling in the moment um, when I've been like forced to go out and for instance, I also tend to have a lot of really bad social anxiety and part of the reason why, like the spawn point pretty much of a lot of that is because I know that I'm not, um, uh, I'm not neurotypical. I'm not normal. So I know in social situations, especially where I'm meeting or having to talk to somebody new, that I'm aware that I may not be able to uh, interpret that person 
appropriately or properly. And I get really stressed out, worried that I'll, I'll walk away from people with them thinking I'm very strange or weird or maybe even too either too reserved or too talkative. There there really isn't an in-between for me. And but as far as like my family, I just feel like I've sometimes been pushed into social situations that I really just cannot handle. I don't know how to handle. And then I'll retreat or I'll go away because I just I can't do it. And then I, I've gotten in trouble before for not being more involved or not interacting with people as much as as what was hoped by you mom sometimes and then it's really hard for me because then it's I I can't like I I tried but like sometimes it it gets so overwhelming it kind of just feels like the world is caving in a bit and I have to get out like I have to escape and yeah I didn't know about autism when you were diagnosed I my profession didn't prepare me for it at all and I certainly didn't know how to as a mom <laughs> I didn't know how to parent you I didn't know how to adjust. And so it's been a learning process for me along the way. Um, what would you say or it has been or have you noticed any differences in how I've adjusted through the years? What's helped the most? So one of the most immediate things that jump out at me is a lot of the times, and this, of course, was more when I was younger, when we would be having a conversation more or less of the time. It would be like a lecture or it would be, so, I would like, I think I would be like, I'd pro I was probably getting in trouble or something. I don't remember, but usually it was like a, a conversation that was just you and me. And I know a lot of the times you'd be like, look at me. And I like, sometimes I can't even look at, a lot of people are like autistic people don't like eye contact and they don't like looking at people in the eye. But sometimes for me, I can't even look at like the whole face in general, just looking at somebody's face sometimes, I just like it's not as extreme as eye contact, but sometimes I can't even look at the face. And so in the past, I know it's been challenging when we had these conversations and you were like, look at me, expecting me to look at your eyes. And I was like, I, I, I literally couldn't like I would keep looking away or I would look down. And sometimes this again, this is like a while back. So I don't remember it super well, but I do remember <laughs> I would I get do. yelled at sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I totally remember when I used to do that because I thought you weren't listening to me. And this is something that I hear from neurotypical clients and people with partner relationships that they feel like their their spouse or their their significant other is not paying attention. And so they so they feel unheard or they they feel ignored. So but I, I remember with you I didn't think you were listening. And so that was my way of getting your attention. Look at me. But I remember as I was learning about autism, that that was more distracting to you to have to look at me. And I even remember having some conversations with you about it. And you told me, mom, when you make me look at you, I'm concentrating so hard on looking at you that I really can't hear anything that you're saying. And so it was really, it was an adjustment that I had to make to learn how to talk to you without you looking at me because my neurotypical way of speaking and interacting involves eye contact. And it's not prolonged eye contact. Autistic folks, when they're trying to make eye contact, mistake it to be like a prolonged, I'm staring you down. 
And it that and for neurotypicals, that's not how it goes, but it's an intermittent glancing at the eyes. And when you didn't do that, it was hard for me. I had to learn how to talk to you and trust that you were listening. And I still ask you sometimes, are you listening to me? And you'll yeah. say, yeah, yeah, I am. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but I have to check in with you that you're listening to me because I'm not getting that eye contact cue. But it was, it's probably been probably seven or eight years since I stopped telling you to look at me. Yeah, it's been a good amount of time. What has changed a lot, I honestly can't really remember much about when I was younger, but I know especially now, I actually use my ears a lot more than my eyes. And it really can look like a lot of times that I'm not paying attention. But what I'm actually doing is I'm turning one of my ears in the direction of the voice because it just helps. I already struggle sometimes to hear, especially in loud environments. And it does, it helps me. I can interpret and really soak in what somebody's saying to me a lot better when one of my ears is aimed at the voice instead of my eyes or looking at the person. And I know like even in my friend group sometimes, like I will be like, it'll, it'll look like I'm like completely not looking and I might even be staring at the ground, but I'm actually like really listening um, in on what somebody's saying and having my ear angled at the voice it just it's more clear and it's so much easier to hear in that way and also because like eye contact also is a thing that I still to this day not like super comfortable with I'm a lot better at it I try to be (laughs) and this is something I want to say all relationships require effort on both from both sides and so a, a lot of my neurotypical partners say, why do I have to do all the work? And the thing is, you're not doing all the work. Your autistic partners are doing a lot of work on their own part, just from managing their sensory overwhelm and and so much of of what they have to do to mask. Like Abby was saying earlier, just when she goes to lunch with her brother, she's having to mask, which is a form of being social and socially appropriate which we all do to a degree when we're not just on our own. But we all have to make an effort. If you imagine a bridge between you and another person, that bridge is communication. It's what connects us to each other. We all have to make an effort to build that bridge. And what Abby's talking about, she does make an effort to make eye contact occasionally, but I don't demand it of her anymore. I don't, I don't assume that she has to make eye contact for me to know that she's listening to me. I've learned that the way she listens is what she just described to you. And so as neurotypicals, we, if we're in a relationship with someone who's neurodiverse, we have to have to acknowledge that it's not just their responsibility to build that bridge to us. We also have to build the bridge to them too. And that means understanding them. And most of you who are neurotypical work really hard at understanding your neurodiverse partners But also, if you're listening and you're neurodiverse, Abby just shared that she makes an effort to make eye contact. So it is also your responsibility to to learn how to also come toward your partner on that bridge too, to make some effort to try to, to speak more of your neurotypical partner's language as well. So before we we end here, I want to just ask both of you, first of all, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast with me. I really appreciate it. I want to ask both of you just 
what would your final message be to the folks who are listening? So my audience is mostly adults who are in relationships. You guys are teenagers, but both of you have more experience, even as teenagers, in, in neurodiverse relationships, or at least understanding them. You have more, maybe knowledge is the better word, of neurodiverse relationships than a lot of the people listening. And you shared a lot of it today. What would be your final message? Do you have a message for the people listening who are, a lot of them are really struggling and really confused and very dis disheartened and that don't even know where to start. I just say communication is definitely key, but also you just got to be patient. You just got to be patient. You got to uh, allow the other person time, whether you are the neurotypical or the neurodiverse person in their relationship, you got to give the other person time to uh, help themselves. And, and help you understand them a little bit more. So yeah, just uh, patience and communication. Patience and, and communication. And, and, and understanding. Yeah. So to take the time to actually understand each other. Mm -hmm. I call that clarification. Y'all hear me say that word all the time. You probably hate it because I say it so much to you. To clarify and understand each other. Yeah. Aiden said a lot of uh, it. Yeah, I'm. I think a lot of just... Yeah, understanding. I think trust is really important. Just trusting that the other person is working to better the relationship because sometimes a, a lack of trust can really cause these rifts in the relationship. And just knowing that you these are two different brains trying to work hard to understand each other, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. And it may or may not get easier. Communication may get easier, but it's always there's always going to be a separation. And I think that just acknowledging, respecting and understanding that difference and working to have kind of a middle ground is really important in these neurodiverse relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So we're always going to be different. We're always going to be different, but respecting that those differences and Knowing that, and I think the thing you said about trust is important because I think a lot of times it's really tempting to fall into kind of a blaming stance and to want to feel like well, I'm the one, I'm the one that's trying harder and I don't believe that you're making an effort. I'm working harder than you. And when we just trust that the other person's actually showing up and sometimes people don't make an effort and that's the legitimate problem. And that's when a relationship doesn't work is when somebody doesn't show up to make an effort and isn't willing to make that effort. And so if that's present in your relationship, if somebody's not willing to make, willing or motivated to make that effort, it's not going to work. You both have to be willing to show up and make the effort. Well, thank you guys. Anything you want to tell me I need to do better? <laughs> Oh, oh, wait, wait, I better stop there. They probably have a <laughs> How much time you got? Right. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Anytime you want to yeah. come back. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Be sure to join me next week when I have a conversation with my mother, who has very interesting insights about her perspective on this whole journey of discovery because not only has she been learning about autism along the way 
as the grandmother to Abby, but she's also discovered her own family members have been autistic, not just her granddaughter, but she's also a retired school teacher. And looking back through her years as a teacher, she was a very good teacher, by the way, very well respected and well known. She shares about how she's realized so many of her students were autistic, but also recognized some very key and important family members in her own life were autistic. And it's been an interesting experience for her to have that framework looking back. So join me next week for that conversation. See you then.